Hello and welcome to Fresh Growth, Approaches to a More Sustainable Future. This podcast will introduce farmers and ranchers from around the West to embrace innovative, sustainable practices to enrich the natural resources we all care about. These successful, multi-generational operations experiment with new ideas and are making it pay. Listen in as they tell their story and provide advice for young or beginning farmers. In our first episode, you'll listen in as Brendan Rocky, co-owner of Rocky Farms in the San Luis Valley of Colorado, describes how the multi-generational family farm has experimented and implemented one new farming practice after another, steadily increasing their sustainability, profitability, soil health, and crop quality. The family originally identified a desire to eliminate toxic chemicals and then realized with their poor soil health and the lack of diversity, they didn't have a system to reduce the chemicals. They made changes one at a time, and now they raise a healthy crop with a focus on bringing life into the system. Hello, and welcome to Fresh Growth, a podcast by the Western SARE Program. That's Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. I'm your host, Stacey Clary, alongside co-host Steve Elliott. Thanks, Stacey. Just for background, Western SARE is funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Institute of Food and Agriculture to promote sustainable farming and ranching across the American West. It does this through research, education, and communication efforts like this podcast. Today's guest is Brendan Rocky, co-owner of Rocky Farms, growing potatoes in the San Luis Valley of Colorado. He's a third-generation farmer and farms with his brother, Sheldon. Brendan, welcome, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, guys. Brendan, can you tell folks where you are located and what it's like there? Yeah, so we're in the San Luis Valley, so that's in the south-central part of Colorado, and we are a high desert valley, so we're surrounded by mountains. Our altitude is about 7,600 feet, and we are desert, so we get less than six inches of annual precipitation. And we usually have a pretty short growing season, Um, especially this year. We were right at 90 days in between frost. Uh, We had a frost on June 23rd, and the next one was on September 23rd. So pretty short growing season, which creates a lot of challenges for us. But it's also having the high valley also creates a lot of advantages for us, especially with growing potatoes. Wonderful. And I've I've heard your family's been farming for a long time. Can you tell us some of your history there in the area? Yeah, my grandpa, Floyd Rocky, is the one that started this farm in 1938. Um, When he started off, he was raising potatoes, and he had some pasture for raising his own sheep. Uh, Later on, my dad and my uncle took over the farm. Uh, this was in the late late 1960s. Um, still, we're growing potatoes, but they, at that time they started growing malting barley for Coors, and my dog, my dad also started a hog operation. Uh, later on, I graduated from CSU in 1999, and my brother the year before. So after that, we both came back to the farm, and that's right when we started. We built our own potato warehouse as well. So currently, we're growing potatoes still, and, and we are also growing some quinoa. And we're growing some cover crop, which is intended for to be grazed by either cattle or sheep. So we've always had potatoes on the operation, but the other parts are the main things that have changed. When did you add the quinoa? Uh, we've probably been growing it about the last five years. Uh, we partnered up with another grower here in the valley that's been growing it for over 30 years. Uh, we saw some opportunities there, and it was it's a good water-saving crop compared to the other cash crops. So we've actually got quite a few other growers in this area growing some quinoa now as well. 
and it, it's it's been a good fit for this valley. It's producing very well here. So we still have a few challenges that we need to figure out, such as pest and weed pressure, probably our two biggest challenges with that crop. But once we get that sorted out, I think it's going to be a real profitable crop for the farmers here. That's wonderful. And, you know, you've been quoted as saying that um, you've found that the farming operation is more efficient and profitable when applying those farming practices um, from that date of your grandfather's time, um, part of your commitment to sustainability. What is that looking for you on the ground? Well, the first shift that occurred for us um, as far as these changes we took towards being more sustainable is the first thing is we wanted to do is really avoid toxic chemicals. Uh, my uncle was the one that really drove this change and he just didn't like being personally exposed to these chemicals. He didn't think the chemicals were good for the soil and he really didn't, didn't think they were going to be good for our consumers either. So that's what we wanted to do was get away from these toxic chemicals. But the trouble was that we had such a dysfunctional system we were working with at the time. We had poor soil health and a lack of diversity. So we didn't really have a system created yet that could handle getting rid of these chemicals. So we had to really sh take a complete shift in our mindset in order to earn the right to avoid those chemicals. Um, the second big shift that happened was all the result of drought. Um, we've had some real low water years here, and we just really didn't have enough water to grow barley for that cash crop. So that's when we started bringing in the cover crops for that initial water savings. And then once we started bringing in the cover crops is when we were introduced to diversity, and that's really a, a, such a, a core foundation for us now. Um, now that our focus is on maintaining a functional system, We've been able to maintain yields on our potatoes, but we're doing it on fewer inputs just because we've improved the efficiency of how the system is working. And at the same time, the quality of our crop has improved greatly. And so that, that all factors into profitability as well. So we have more sellable crop at the end of the season. And we've just had to kind of teach ourselves that I think a lot of times we get stuck in this dynamic in agriculture that we always think that we have to grow more crop in order to make more money. But instead of putting so much emphasis on production and yield, we decided let's really just keep growing the same crop we're growing, do a, a higher quality crop, but really become more efficient with our inputs that we're, we're putting into it. So with what, the way we're farming now, we feel like we've really eliminated a lot of expenses with, of growing the crop because every time we spend money now, the focus is on investing in the soil. So when you invest in the soil, you have that potential for a return on your investment, as opposed to when you have an expense, you, you just spend that money and don't get anything in return. So talking about your soil health, how long ago was it when you first decided to make these shifts, reducing the chemical inputs and starting to look at your, your soil and building it up? How long ago was that, and what changes have you seen over those years? Um, that was a good 25, 30 years ago that we really first started making these changes. And it, it's been a really long transition for us because at the time we, you know, we started off identifying the practices we wanted to stop using, but we really didn't know what we should be doing instead of. So we would first started off by eliminating the chemicals and then we had to figure out different ways to farm without them. And so we just brought in these individual practices one at a time and so we would bring in one practice, we would establish it, see what benefits were, figure out how to really start using that to a full benefit, and then we would start bringing in other practices after that. 
So and I, I feel like we're still in transition. We still I don't feel like we've perfected anything. I think there's a lot of room for improvement still, so we keep bringing in more and more as, as we move along. Um, a lot of the things we've seen is uh, the, the major thing is just a huge change in our soil structure. So that in, has an impact on water. You know, we have a better infiltration rate and we have a higher water holding capacity. But also with this great soil structure, we have improved uh, gas exchange. And so I think that's probably the biggest factor that we've seen as far as eliminating a lot of disease from our potato crop. You um, talk about biotic farming. Can you um, yeah. tell us what that is about? Well, to me, biotic farming is just bringing life back into farming. I think for a while there, we got stuck into this, this mindset. It was a real linear mindset of whenever we had a problem, we decided to go out and try to kill the problem off. You know, if aphid are still a threat to us, but the way we were approaching it at first was, we identified the threat as the aphids. So we decided to go out with the chemical and tried to kill the aphids. So what we're doing now is everything that we do now is about bringing more life back into the system. So now when we try to control the aphid, instead of spraying an in, in insecticide that's killing the aphid and who knows what else, now we come in with flower strips and companion crops in our potatoes. And we've added a lot of flowers into our cropping system to provide a food source for beneficial insects. And that living component is now controlling the aphid population for us. So it's really more of a, it's a shift in the mindset more than anything. And it just, we're, we're growing a crop to feed other people. So it's all about life. So I, it was just really confusing to us how all of this life, we were trying to solve our problems with death. So instead now we want this dynamic living system that functions properly. And at the end of it, we end up with a good crop that's actually helping uh, create healthier human beings as well. So it's all about this positive life. That sounds wonderful. And you mentioned earlier that you're getting a better crop. Is that in yields or have you also heard from your uh, customers about uh, the quality as well? Yeah, it's more quality, definitely for sure. Um, so when we grow all specialty potatoes, we don't grow russet potatoes. Um, we grow very unique potatoes. Uh, we re really grow quite a few acres of fingerling potatoes. And when it comes to yield, we're always going to have kind of a ceiling set on that because we're growing for a specific size profile. So, like, specifically fingerling potatoes, we don't want great big fingerling potatoes. That Kind of that medium and small range is actually more profitable for us. So we get to a certain size profile and we terminate the crop. So we're never going to see these great big yields. So for us, where we make more money is an improvement in the quality of the crop. And so when we bring a better quality potato crop out of the field into storage, they store better, um, they last longer, they have fewer diseases in storage that can break down and, and cause um, crop loss in storage. Um, and a lot of the problems we used to deal with were very aesthetic. Um, Rhizoctonia actually creates this black scurf on the potatoes. And makes it you have to sort more of the potatoes out, makes the, the product less sellable. Um, as we've improved our soil structure and brought more carbon cycling in, we've almost eliminated this completely from our potatoes. So we just, when we run the potatoes through the warehouse, we throw less of them away and have more of that sellable crop. We have a lot of people that come here and buy potatoes directly from, from us. We have a very loyal customer base, and it's because we consistently deliver a quality crop. And people really appreciate the product we're providing them, 
but most of them really appreciate the farming practices we're using as well. So these are all really good, positive things for us. Brandon, was there ever an aha moment when, you know, as your uncle started this, this transition that, you know, and you weren't quite sure what to do next, which practice would work, that it's like that, that moment when, when everybody said, yeah, this is working. This is how we want to farm. Yeah, when when we first started off with cover crops, at first it was just we started off with just sorghum sedan. It was just a monoculture crop, and I was real fortunate. And I had Jay Fear came and visited my farm, and he was talking to me about diversity in these cover crops. And that was probably one of the the biggest moments for us is when I really started to stop and think about diversity in these cropping systems. Um, before he left that day, we sat down and come up with a seven species mix for these cover crops. And I was, it made a lot of sense to me. So the next year we planted this diverse cover crop out there and just watching these different plants grow together. It just made so much sense once I had it in front of me and I could see them interacting with each other. And so that's where I talked about, you know, diversity became such a foundation for us. So after I was able to watch this cover crop grow in this diversity, I still had a monoculture of potatoes growing out there, and I just had to really stop and evaluate whether or not this was the ideal scenario. And we used to grow field peas out in our potatoes, and there was one day I was out in the potatoes, and I was walking along, and we, I came across a patch of field peas that was just growing volunteer in the potatoes. And I just st remember standing there and just looking at those, thinking, well, I don't think those peas are doing any harm out here. So I started to wonder whether or not they were actually creating a benefit for me. <clears throat> so the next year I actually intentionally planted peas in my potatoes. So I would say that was a, you know, one of those aha moments that you're talking about. And that first year that I planted those peas in the potatoes, I was just so pleased with how well the two plants interacted with each other. And we actually didn't, by having the companion crop out there, we didn't end up using any more water but we actually saw a slight yield increase by having that pea out there. So that was a huge mindset uh, shift for me because I was always taught before that any plant out there that isn't your cash crop is going to create competition. But if it, if those peas planted out there weren't creating, you know, I actually saw a yield increase, so they weren't actually creating competition, but the plants were collaborating together. And so after that, I really was convinced that having diversity out there in the potato crop was very beneficial. So this is when I started bringing in a lot more in the companion crop. So each year after that, I started adding more and more diversity into the potatoes. So it started with field peas, and then the next year I brought in chickling vetch, and then I brought in chickpeas, and then faba beans. And all of these served similar purposes, but yet just slightly different. Um, so a lot of them were providing nitrogen for the potato crop by fixing the nitrogen since they were legumes. But then I started noticing how many beneficial insects were also thriving on these companion crops. And so that's when I started looking at other non-legume crops, and I started bringing buckwheat in as a companion crop as well. So the buckwheat was great for feeding beneficial insects, but then as I learned more about buckwheat, I learned how valuable it was for mobilizing phosphorus in our soil. So, you know, I had one reason for going down this path, but then I just started discovering all of these other things that were stacking on top of each other and all these extra benefits I was getting from this. So th those were some of those moments that were just huge for us. And the first time we grew a potato crop following that diverse cover crop, 
was probably the largest leap forward we ever took in one growing season because that next potato crop we grew following that first diverse cover crop it just it was amazing to many to me how many problems just disappeared by simply bringing diversity into the rotation that's fantastic do you have neighbors, and what did they say as you started planting companion crops in with your potatoes? Yeah, it's been interesting because when, when you drive down the road and look at my potato field, I've got all these different plants growing out there in my potato crop. And for the people that don't realize what I'm doing out there, they probably think I'm doing a horrible job managing my weeds. But for the people that understand that I'm actually putting those crops out there and understand the benefits that I'm getting from that, it's interesting seeing their reactions to it. Um, I've had several other farmers that are trying to implement this into their own cropping system as well. And, and it has been interesting. Like the, the mindset shift has been <clears throat> really interesting because everybody was at first was telling me that it was going to be a huge mistake. I was going to create competition out there and I was going to really hurt my potato crop, but I've seen nothing but benefit come from this, whether it's a part of managing aphid in my field, or if, if it comes down to adding this uh, fertility component, because by having those legumes out there, I'm able to greatly reduce what other inputs I need to put out there as far as fertility. So now when you talk to the neighbors, they're actually, most of them are pretty interested and pretty supportive of what I'm doing. Um, I, it, I'd like to see a few more guys give it a good honest try and try to figure out how to work it into their system. But most guys are still a little bit hesitant, but at least, they understand what I'm trying to do and are actually pretty supportive. And most of them think that it's pretty cool actually that I'm doing that out in my potatoes. Did you worry about water? I mean, with, with as little water as you get, that, that this would be a moisture competition, that that would be the, the limiting factor? Well, yeah, I mean, it's something I had to pay attention to for sure. And when I grew that first crop with the pea companion crop, we didn't do the whole field. I had some sections out there. So I was able to see how, if there was any difference in irrigation out there where I did and didn't have the peas, and I just never noticed the difference whatsoever. So I was using the same amount of water, but I actually yielded a little bit more potatoes. So what that showed me is I was actually becoming even more efficient with the water that I was applying. So I really don't worry about it at all as far as using up more water. Um, I, I, I I, I watch my water usage very closely, and at no point do I feel like it has created any problems as far as water usage goes, because I really do feel like it has improved the system as a whole, and I'm much more efficient with all of my inputs now by having that diversity as a part of the system. Makes sense. You know, you just mentioned that you were, uh, some of the other growers in your area are, are curious, or they're starting to look at it. That's different than when I met with you quite a few years ago. If I remember correctly, that was probably at the point when they thought that it wasn't going to work for you. So I think it's great that now you're getting uh, a good reception from some in the area. I, I also noticed that you're very active on social media and you do a lot of speaking engagements. So why is it you enjoy sharing your experiences with other growers and what's the reception been like outside of your region yeah well the reason i do it is just i, I do recognize that i've been very fortunate through our progress um, i've <clears throat> i've been surrounded by a lot of great teachers and i feel like i have figured a lot of things out so now i just feel like it's my turn to share my knowledge with others 
And I, I have had very positive uh, receptions to my, my talks. And I think a lot of it is because of the attitude I go in with. Um, when I get in front of a crowd, the last thing I want to do is get up there and tell anybody that what, I, what they are doing is wrong or what they should be doing. I simply get up there and just tell them that I'm a farmer just like you. And here is what I'm doing on my farm. And here's what I've seen work and what I haven't seen work. Now, if somebody chooses to take that information and, and use it on their own farm, that's great. That makes me feel really good. But I, I can't force people to make these changes. So all I can do is present the information. And hopefully I run into some people that, you know, hear what I have to say and want to use it in a positive way and make some changes. And I, I know a lot of people have heard me talk and have gone back to their own operation and reevaluated some things. And it's great hearing from these people several years later when they come back and talk about these great positive things that they've done on their own farm. And a lot of times it's been the result of hearing me talk. So those are great motivations as far as continuing to do what I do. And I have no problem at all sharing what I've learned. And, and it's very rewarding and satisfying for me to, to have a positive impact on other people's farms as well. Yeah, I bet that sounds very gratifying. I did have one other question about what you do on the farm, and that's the uh, seed potato, the tissue culture lab. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, so there isn't a single potato grown in this country that doesn't start from tissue culture and uh, greenhouse production. So that part of it really isn't unique to our farm. But what, what happens there is since we, when we plant a potato crop, we plant the potato itself. So it's all vegetative propagation. So if you ever get a disease introduced into that, when you plant that crop back, the disease is still going to be there. So the reason we start everything from tissue culture is we can start with plantlets from a potato that have been tested for different diseases, and they can be cleaned up. So we're starting with disease-free plants. And in the tissue culture lab, all we're doing is reproducing those plants. So we're starting off with a small number of clean plants. We're reproducing those plantlets to increase our population, but they're still clean. We take those plantlets and we transplant them into a greenhouse. And at that point, all we're trying to grow is mini tubers. So these small tubers that were grown in the greenhouse were produced from disease-free plantlets. So we end up with disease-free potatoes. So on our farm, we do year-round production. I do three crops a year, and I'll save all of those tubers back, and those get planted into our field in the summer. So once those tubers from the greenhouse go into the field, it becomes generation one potato seed. That's the first year it's been in the field. So we will save that seed back, plant it the next year. We repeat this several years. So from the time we grow those plants in the greenhouse to produce those mini tubers, it usually takes about four years for us to produce enough that we have a volume that we can sell to other people. And so along this whole way, there's a certification process. Um, in order for us to maintain a feedlot, we have to meet certain criteria as far as disease tolerance. So we, by saying that that seed is still certified, we can guarantee certain things about that crop as far as meeting certain tolerances. So as far as tissue culture and greenhouse production, like I said, that's not unique to our farm necessarily. Now, when we go in the greenhouse, there are definitely some practices I'm using in there that are different than a lot of the greenhouses. Um, in the summertime, we get a lot of insect pressure in our greenhouse. So I actually use a companion flowering crop in the greenhouse to 
create habitat and provide a food source for beneficial insects. So I have this diverse flowering crop in the greenhouse crop, and then I'll release ladybugs and lacewing into the greenhouse. And since I have that flowering crop in the greenhouse, it'll actually allow these beneficial insects to go through complete life cycles. And so this goes right along with that biotic system I was telling you about earlier. I'm bringing mm -hmm. in more living plants to support the life of these beneficial insects, and that's ultimately what's controlling the pest population for me. So we're bringing in more and more life, and by doing this, I no longer have a need for insecticides in the greenhouse. So we're just trying to use that same philosophy out in the field as well. Oh, that sounds pretty fantastic. What about the greenhouse itself? Are you using any alternative energy or something that might be something different than how other greenhouses might be operated? Yeah, I mean, we use a little bit of geothermal. We've got some air coming in there that's ambient soil temperature. So it provides some heating and some cooling depending on what what it, the alternate temperature is outside. Um, and I also, I don't use any synthetic fertilizer in the greenhouses either. Um, we create our own uh, potting soil blend that has compost, it has a fish product and some soybean meal and some different biologicals in it. And this potting soil blend has been really good for us. Um, it's a lot of the same product I use out in the field as well. So a lot of similarities there, but it, it's just a tremendous uh, food source for the plants and it just eliminates the need for any of these synthetic inputs. I'm curious, Brendan, have you, have you ever tried anything that didn't work? And how do you implement <clears throat> a new practice and and not at the farm, um, you know, on whether or not it does. Yeah, so, you know, as, as I travel around to these conferences, you know, a lot of them are soil health-based, and I, I have run into a lot of people that are very adamant about no-till farming. Now, as far as no-till goes, I think it's absolutely fabulous if it's in the right scenario. But as far as potato goes, it's just not very realistic. Um, the, the crop I'm growing is down in the soil. So there's right. going to be some soil disturbance that comes along with raising potatoes. So I've tried some different things out in the field to reduce some tillage. Or uh, one thing I did is I, I, I tried to manage my cover crop differently the year before, and I left a lot more residue out on the field. And the next year when I went to plant the potatoes out there, it was just an absolute wreck. Um, to me, I have to manage my residue from the cover crops. I really need it to break down to a certain point because the equipment that we have for planting and harvesting potatoes, it just can't handle that residue. So some people will talk to you about, you know, how there's different techniques where you can grow no-till potatoes, which involves covering, putting the potato on top of the, the soil and covering it with a lot of residue. Now, on a small scale in a garden, that works fine. But I've also gone through and kind of put the economics to what that would look like if we were to do it on any kind of large scale, and the economics just don't support it. So even though conceptually I would love to be able to do something like that, I would only be able to do it for one year because I would go broke trying. Um, there's just no way for us, we couldn't afford to go through and cover 240 acres with enough residue to grow this potato crop, and I just don't think the crop would produce near enough the judgment, you know, if, if you will, um, that, you're, that you're getting isn't coming from somebody doing it an old way, thinking, you know, that you upstart, you, you know, it's silly the way you're growing potatoes. It's from people pushing who want to push it further. 
to say, no, this is the only way to do it. Uh, um, like sustainable agriculture needs to be sustainable. It needs to exist next year. Um, it's got to come out. Well, and that's what's so frustrating about it with the no-till people is just these are all people that are – they don't grow potatoes for a living, but they have all the answers, right? And that's why I said when I go and give talks, the last thing I want to do is tell somebody what they should be doing. But when you talk to these no-till farmers, that's that's the problem I run into is they all sit there and tell me what I should be doing. But it's easy to say that from the outside because your livelihood doesn't depend on it. Yeah. And that and that's just really so, – so I see how frustrating that is on the receiving end. So the last thing I want to do is be the one that's presenting that message to somebody else. Yeah. When you and your brother started managing the farm, I mean, I know your uncle had started sort of that transition. You know, were there is, – is there a generational shift um, between younger farmers, older farmers, second-generation farmers, third-generation farmers? Um, oh, I see that a lot of – yeah. Talk about that a little. So, yes. So so when I first started making a lot of these changes on our farm, um, a lot of the older farmers especially didn't really have much interest in what I was doing. And I, I think a lot of it was just pride. You know, these, these older guys, I mean – as much as I respect them, they just didn't want somebody younger than them telling them how to do something differently. But then I, I did this for long enough. And then what happened is a lot of their kids started coming back to the farm. And if, as long as the farmer was younger than me, they were very open-minded to what I was doing. So most of the people that are making a lot of big changes here, the neighboring farms, they're the farms being run by much younger people. They're just so much more open-minded to it. They actually look up to me as a mentor. We're able to have some very honest conversations with each other, and we try to help each other out and keep pushing each other forward. And so, that, I mean, that's, that's been really a, a good thing to be a part of. I, I really enjoy that. One thing that is interesting to me, too, is just when I talk, I talk so much about community, right? I'm talking about the microbes in the soil and the communities they create. I talk about plant communities. I talk about insect communities. But as, as I've gone along this path, it's amazing to me how much it's done to support our own community with people. Um, a great example of that is what we're doing with the cover crops now. When we started growing the cover crops, I was building some soil. I was saving some water. But then I had a rancher that had some cattle came to me and said, hey, you're growing all this great seed, and it breaks my heart to see you just turn it over and put it back in the soil. So I said, well, bring your cattle out. So we worked together back and forth, and he pays me a little pasture rent. He comes out, and he actually grazes the crop for me now. And as a result, now I don't have to go out and chop the crop. So that's less labor, less fuel, less equipment in the field. And he's paying me, which helps offset a lot of my expenses for growing this cover crop. So here he is. He's getting a great value on that feed. He has feed for his cattle. I was already growing the feed. I don't, I don't have my own cattle, but I found somebody else that had one. And we've got this great dynamic now where when my grandpa was farming, everybody was a farmer and a rancher. All the farmers had a little bit of livestock. But as we started moving forward, we, we created this separation. Then you were either a farmer or a rancher. But now by focusing on the soil and these fundamentals, there's these different ways for everybody to work together and everybody can win at the end of the day. And that's been really neat for me to, to witness and be a part of. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, that's, that's, that's something I wish we could bottle and export um, to, to 
home arms across the West because you, you see it in pockets and you see it in, in certain communities and, and with certain groups of farmers. And then, you know, you see large swaths of it where it's not there yet. And what do you think it takes to get somebody there, to get them thinking it's, it's soil, it's sustainable, it's not one-year yield, it's long-term growth? I would say nine times out of 10, if you're going to convince somebody to use these practices, you have to convince them that the economics are going to support it. Um, when we first started farming this way, a lot of the, 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 the naysayers were saying, well, how can you afford to farm this way? But when you look at the big picture and look at how much we've been able to reduce our inputs and still grow the same crop, after a while you start to say, how can you afford not to grow this way? And we've had some real large farmers here. They were looking at some of our farming practices as far as the fertility, cover crops, grazing, all these things. And they came in real large scale, and they had the ability to really track these crops. And they were growing half the crop one way and half the crop the other way. And they were able to track it all the way through the warehouse. And at the end of the day, they ended up making more money with these practices. So once they were convinced of that, that they were actually able to make more money from doing this, then they were completely sold and they've transitioned their whole farm. So it just, it, there's all these mindsets that we need to really shift in agriculture. You know, we, we, we can, we can win in many different ways. We can take care of the soil we can take care of the people and we can actually make more money at the same time. And so a lot of it is just, <clears throat> what I like to tell people is just, you know, farming this way can make you more money. But just keep in mind, if, if you're making more money, that means more of that money staying in your pocket. And the reason you're more profitable is because you quit giving that money to somebody else. So that means the people that are no longer getting that money from you are going to be opposed to this new way of farming. That's true. That's true. So we've talked some about changing uh, mindsets of people who have been farming for a while what advice would you have for somebody just beginning, just starting their operation, and they're interested in farming sustainably, and they also need to be profitable? Yeah, well, I think there are a ton of resources out there. Um, I think we need to get back to some fundamentals again. Um, when I give my talks, I've actually started talking about photosynthesis and respiration a little bit more, because these are just some key components that and it's, it's the, the building blocks for everything when it comes to sustainable agriculture. But we don't stop and take, talk about these real small key fundamentals anymore. So, you know, we talk about carbon so much in sustainable agriculture, but I don't think most farmers really truly understand what role carbon plays. So we need to get back to some basics and some fundamentals. And there's great resources out there. But for me personally, I've learned more from other farmers than any other group. So I think it is important for these young farmers that want to learn to farm this way is you really need to seek out some farmers that are already successfully using these practices. And you have to be respectful about that. I mean, these other farmers are also trying to make a living. So don't go, you know, consume them with your questions. But if you can go in respectfully and try to learn from them, that's really good. And sometimes, you know, you might bring a new perspective and they might be able to learn from you as well. So it really goes back to building these communities again. You need to go out and find like-minded people with similar goals to you and help each other out. It, building this community, everybody can benefit from, from us all working towards that same goal. That's some very good advice. And, and definitely one of the threads throughout our conversation today has been about respect 
um, not trying to tell somebody what to do, and a young farmer respecting the time of somebody they want to learn from, and then the importance of community and building it, and that's what sure. will help people be successful. Yeah. Well, Brendan, we really uh, appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. You're doing great work. There was a lot that you shared, and thanks so much for telling us your story and letting us know how things are going on your farm. Yeah, absolutely.